0: Tonight, I'm going to deal with just uh, three passages of scripture. Tonight, I want to talk about the subject of complete in Christ. Complete in Christ. We're going to look at three main scriptures, and these are our completeness in Christ from three different perspectives. The first perspective is going to be from the person who trusts in God as his shepherd. The second, we're going to view what Christ says, and he's the one who came to redeem us from Satan. And then finally, we're going to look at the apostle who ministers the mysteries of Christ to the church. So for the first one, let's get Psalm 23. And we're just going to read one verse there. And it says, because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. Number two, we're going to pick up Christ's view of this in uh, St. John 8. Verse number 30. Jesus said to them, this is also from the Living Bible Translation. You are truly my disciples if you live as I tell you to, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said, and have never been slaves to any man on earth. What do you mean set free? Jesus replied, you are slaves of sin, every one of you, and slaves don't have rights. But the Son has every right there is. So if the Son sets you free, you will indeed be free. And finally, let's pick up the apostle who ministers the mysteries of Christ to the church, Colossians 2. And this is going to be my main passage that I'm going to deal with. I want to deal with verses 8, 9, and 10. So instead of going 8, 9, 10, we're going to do 10 and back up to 8. And then get a backwards view of where we should be. So we're going to start in verse number 10. I'll pick it up. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So the one who trusts God as a shepherd says, because you're my shepherd, I have everything I need. Jesus Christ comes to us and says, you're slaves and you don't have any rights at all. But if I set you free, you'll be free indeed. And then Paul picks it up and says that you're complete in him, who is the head of all principalities and powers. I got a couple of questions I want to ask. Why do we often present ourselves before God and others as broken, shattered, undone, or bound? Many of us talk about getting our deliverance, getting our breakthrough, getting our healing, getting our miracle. If our lives were to line up with the scriptures, with the sheep that's dependent on the shepherd and the slave that has been set free by the son. And the one who is complete and the one who has principality power over every principality and power. Then why do we present ourselves as shattered, undone, broken, incomplete? What things have you convinced yourself will make you feel more complete or whole? What things have you convinced yourself that will make you more validated as a child of God? Cuz there's some things that come into our experience to where we don't feel like God's child at all. Am I really in the place of favor? But what is it that we've convinced ourselves we need in order to feel favored? In order to feel love? In order to feel accepted by Christ? Is it if you get a new job? If I get that job that I want, then, then I'll know, oh yeah, God's on my side. That promotion. Now, if the boss, now the Bible says that if your ways please God, he'll make your enemies at peace with him. I can walk on that job. And that boss got to give me that promotion because I'm, I'm favored. I'm, I'm God's child. Is that what you need in order to fill that position in God? Is it a spouse? Some walk around and say, now, now I'm going to go to the singles meeting and I'm going to do the singles bake sale and I'm going to do the singles this, that, and the other. And I know that I, God's got a husband for me. God's got a wife for me. In the church, I know he's here. I'm coming to get a spouse. Then I'll know God's working on my behalf. But David already said, because the Lord is my shepherd, I already have everything I need. Is it a relationship? If I could just find a faithful friend, one that won't backbite against me, you know, somebody that just you won't run my name through the dirt. Somebody I could really trust, because that last friend just did me wrong. You know, I I could find that 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 one true friend. When the scriptures tell us there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Here's where we all at. That new house. I'm God's child. I I, you know, I can't live in this one bedroom apartment. That ain't how we live. We're supposed to live as king. I'm a king's kid. We got all the title. I'm a a child of the king. My daddy's rich. Cattle on the thousand hills belong to him. So we feel incomplete when we live in a place that's less than what we think God ought to give us that new car. There's nothing wrong with the one you got. It gets you to work every day, gets you back home. Gets you to the grocery store, gets you back home. You don't have to call a tow truck at the gas station. I hope. (laughs) If you do, then you might need a new car. (laughs) But these are some of the things that that are in our lives that we look to Because we need something to say God loves me because I'm in his kingdom. When he says the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation, you can't see the love that I'm talking about. The love that I'm talking about, it's a personal relationship with the Savior. So Paul says you are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. This word complete, it means replete or abundantly supplied or provided or filled. In this verse, this completeness has a source. We are not complete within ourselves. This word has something that is the source of the completeness. It is not just being complete. It's something that made you complete. So this word means to make replete, to cram, to cram. Something that's crammed really is put into something that really you don't think it was designed to fit into. But you cram it in there. Paul is saying that, that what you don't think you deserve, what you don't deserve God is placed in you anyway because he simply loves us. He crammed it into us. We weren't fit vessels for God. He crammed his mercy, his grace, his loving kindness into our souls. It means to level up. It means that that you're in a place to where you, you come short. It's like. We go to the through the drive-through and you get that soda that you paid all of your dollar and ninety-eight cents for, but you you open the top and realize it ain't full, and the potato chip company really got it bad. You get that big bag; it's full of air, it's nice and fluffy, and you open it up and only one third of the bag is filled with chips. But Paul says here he has leveled you up; you're you're full. In fact. The psalmist says that my cup runs over. That means I have more than enough. It's like you go to that fountain drink machine and you, you, you forget that you're pressing the button. And before you know it, you, you're trying to sip off the top. We have more than enough. So the actualization of this completeness is realized in Christ. He's not making us complete. We are already complete if we're in him. So this is not a process. She talked earlier, it's a process. You know, baby steps. You already have tonight everything that you need. Paul identifies the foundation of our completeness. Because he says, you are complete in him. And here's the qualifier which is the head of all principality and power. He strengthens this fact by expressing the power that Christ possesses. After all, what is power without authority? What is the difference between the gun that I have and the gun that the police officer has? He has the authority. I don't, as a citizen, have the authority that the police officer has. Christ is the head of all principality and power. So there is no power in the universe that isn't subject to Christ, even Satan himself. So in Christ, there's no excuse because in him, we possess the ability to overcome any and all powers that are out there. He is the head of all principality and power. So that means that when we get to that really hard test and trial in our life to where we get to the point where we call that friend that we think we can trust and we say you know what I need prayer the enemy is attacking me the enemy is doing this the enemy is working with my kids and the devil's doing this that and the other when we're talking there's a power that has come to attack you but Christ is the head of that power it's an insult to god to stop at the subordinate power to him so you can't mention satan without going to christ we stop at satan and we talk about all that satan's doing all the devil's doing Mm. all that the spirits are doing he's the head of that power it's an insult to him to stop at that there are some folk they don't go to just the the waitress in a restaurant, they don't go to the general manager. They, they get on the phone and call corporate. I want to talk to the head and get some answers. When the problem is the waitress, the waiter, or the general manager, because sometimes the general manager is just as bad as the waiter you having a problem with. So you got to go somewhere higher. So when we're talking about what the devil's doing... It's all right to say what the devil's doing because we're not ignorant of his devices. But don't stop there. Realize that there is a higher power to him that you can go through because Christ died on the cross in order for you to go boldly to the throne of grace that you might obtain help in the time of need. This word "principality" it speaks of rank and hierarchy, the beginning or the commencement. It is the chief in various applications such as order, place, or rank. Principality means the beginning, the corner, the magistrate, the power, a principle or a rule. And the word that he uses here for power speaks of ability, force, influence, authority, jurisdiction, liberty, Power, right, remember that word right, remember the slave has no rights or strength. The reason Christ has power over all of these is because he is the sole creator of all of them. They were created by him and for him. So what principalities and powers are you fighting right now? Just think in in the place that you are now. Or if you just came out of a heated trial or a test, what was the last principality or power that you struggled with, that you battled with? Now, let's run through a few scriptures here. Let's get Ephesians 6. Verse number 12 says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities against powers Against then he throws in a couple extra ones here against rulers of darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is the war that we're fighting. It's not with the person, but it's with the influence behind the person. I wish that we could confront the principality. As harsh as we're willing to confront the person that the principality is influencing. I wish that we could denounce and cut off the principality as readily as we are willing to cut off and denounce the person that is being influenced by the principality. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. There's a spirit moving. And guess what? There are going to be some people in life in your little circle that are going to give in to the influence. And they're going to allow the devil to use them. But what are you going to do? Can we really say at all times, I'm not ignorant of the devil's devices. When you pick up a war and battle and you end up battling flesh instead of a principality. You're already defeated. You're not in a place. You're carnal. He's given us wisdom and knowledge. Let's get Colossians 1. Verse number 16, speaking of Jesus Christ, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, now he's talking about earthly kingdoms, thrones, dominions, or principalities, or look at the ranking order that he has this in. You have thrones, kings, dominions, their kingdom, principalities, where they get their power from, and powers where they get their influence or rank from. All things were created by him and for him. So that person that that you're struggling with, the principality behind that was created by Christ for Christ, but I'm not supposed to be going through all this tested trial, and I'm a child of the king. I'm supposed to be able to live on top. If Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered, how do you think you're gonna learn your obedience? The Bible tells us Jesus learned obedience. The one who said, I always do the things that please my father. He learned his obedience through his suffering. This is where it becomes dangerous to call yourself a Christian because the word Christian means Christ like. And Christian isn't a term that you put on yourself because in the New Testament, the word Christian was put on them by the sinners. Because they took note that these people have been with Jesus. These people are Christ like. Why? Because their suffering brings about obedience because they told us that, man, we rather obey God than obey man. You can't stop me from preaching in the name of Jesus. You can't stop me from doing what God has called me to do. My obedience is coming through the suffering. You could do what you want to me, but I'm going to obey God rather than man. This is why they called them Christians. Let's jump over to chapter two, Colossians. Verse number 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers. Hold on to that word spoiled. Because we're going to deal with it. He made a show of them openly. Triumphing over them. In it. In what? In the power that he created. I'm going to take the power that I gave you. Triumph over you. You become my captive. Which Natalie talked about earlier bringing that thing into captivity and making it a slave and putting enough fear in that thing to where it doesn't rear its ugly head up because it has a fear of the power that you possess. He spoiled the principalities. That means that he took them and owned them. See, we like to talk about the cross story, but there's so much that went on. In the time that he was on his way to the cross, when they were nailing him to the cross, as he was giving up the ghost, as he went down. There are so many things that we have failed to just look into that he did in all of that time while he suffered for us. Ephesians 1. I guess I'll start at, I have verse 20, but I'll start at 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward, who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above, not equal to, not underneath, but everything that was working in the elements, first heaven, second heaven, third heaven, If there was a power in the third heaven, God placed his son far above that authority. Yet we come to God and say, Lord, I'm struggling with this and I'm struggling with that. And I need this in order to feel complete. And I need my deliverance and I want my healing and I want this and I want that and I want the other. Or if you're in him. Now, this probably might call for another question is, am I really in him? Because if I'm in him, then I'm complete. If I'm complete, I don't go around saying I'm incomplete. I'm undone. I'm lacking. I need more. We even write songs. More, more, I need more. Why are we making up these songs? They wonder why he not changing. And last one, Ephesians 3. Verse number 9. And to explain to everyone that God is the Savior of the Gentiles, too, just as He who made all things had secretly planned from the very beginning. And his reason? To show to all the rulers in heaven. How perfectly wise he is when all of his family, Jews and Gentiles alike, are seen to be joined together in his church. I'm going to have to read the King James because there's there's something here. Verse 10 again in the King James. To the intent that now unto principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known to the church. Might be known by the church, I'm sorry, the manifold wisdom of God. What is he saying here? He's saying that the gospel, the redemptive plan, another scripture tells us that the angels desire to look into. He's telling us here that the only way that the devil and his comrades know about the redemptive plan is because of the church. He's revealing his wisdom to the devil through us. This is why we got to be in the right position with God. Because if we're sitting up here talking defeat and incompleteness, the devil can sit back and say, they don't know what they're talking about. So the principalities and powers aren't supposed to have their way with us. We're supposed to be revealing to them who God is. Now when you go back to Job, you can see what God was doing. God doesn't just tell the devil, okay, that's my son, that's my daughter, no, no, no. Say, I'm going to prove to you what they got. Do what you want with them. And their action, their obedience through their suffering is going to prove to you who I am. It wasn't about Job. It was about God. Job is going to prove to you the power that I possess. So the problem is we have the power. We have the authority, but we're not using it. We've got to use the authority that is given to us. But we want to be a a people that possess the power that when we pray, the answer comes. Just the other week, somebody called me. Their father was in the hospital and I went and prayed for him. He was pretty much out of here. I went and prayed for him and the nurse, uh, I don't know what she was saying now, but she was like, I'm praying. It ain't over till God says it's over. It don't medically. It does not look good. That's what she told us. It don't look good medically. If we were to take him off this breathing machine, he would probably die. So I prayed for him, and I believe God. They call me the next day. Oh, he's sitting up drinking, eating. Call me two days later. Oh, he's home, up walking around. The church is supposed to possess the power that displays that Christ has the power over every principality, dominion, and power. How is it it going to show it if he doesn't show it through us? We can't be in in that position to be ambassadors for Christ if we're walking around, well, I I need healing. What about somebody else? They need healing too. So much to the point where Paul really didn't worry about his own healing because Paul had some stuff going in his flesh. Yet, there are folks that he was going praying for that were being healed. In fact, Christ healed the entire world dying on the cross. That's when we we can't be selfish. So back to Colossians 2. We read verse 10. Now we're going to back up one to verse number nine. Verse number nine says, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So the perspective of our vision must change and line up with Christ. How you see yourself depends on how you see Christ. An erroneous view of Christ will ultimately distort our completeness. This is why I decided to take these scriptures backward, because we want to have the completeness, but when we back up to the verses that precede the completeness, you've got to view Christ in the way that he, is, he really is. So he says here, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And I think I've dealt with the scripture a lot over the years because the, the way he words it just blows my mind. Because he could have just said Christ is God. But he didn't say that. He said, in him dwelleth all, A-L-L, the fullness, F-U-L-L-N-E-S-S, of the Godhead bodily. You have three emphatic, complete phrases there, all Fullness and Godhead. The word all means any and all variations. The whole, including all subparts individually. Fullness means what is put in to fill it up. In other words, everything that would solidify God is God, that's in Christ. And the Godhead means all that God is. Once again, the word all means. Any and all variations, that means any variable that you think that that exists in God, all of that's in Christ. It means the whole, including all subparts, individually. Again, fullness means what is put in to fill it up. It means not just a cup full of water. But the broken down particles of the hydrogen and the oxygen that makes up every molecule to fill that up. That means the invisible ingredients of the water he's put in. He's putting in this when he says that in Christ is all the fullness of the Godhead. Everything, the invisible stuff that you haven't even seen, heard, nor entered into the heart of man. Paul says it's in Christ. In fact, John had seen so many miracles, he said, I can't write them all. He said, but you've seen enough in order to be saved. You've heard enough in order to be complete. And of course, the word Godhead is really from the term Godhood, which means all that God is. The Bible says that the just shall live by faith. And in Hebrews, it says without faith, it's impossible to please God. This applies not only to our conversion and saving faith, but it also applies to keeping faith. A lot of us, we we came, we we had enough faith to get saved. We had enough faith to come down and get baptized. We had enough faith for God to fill us with the spirit. The just aren't born with faith. The scripture says the just live by faith. But how, how many of us, we just stop? With the say, if God don't do nothing else for me, just as long as I was born. Again, (laughs) He didn't give you birth to stay a baby. He 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 birthed the church in order to grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. He wants a full-grown man when He comes back for His church. He ain't come back for the baby that He left on the day of Pentecost. He's coming back for a full-grown church. That grew in him, that grew in wisdom, that grew in love, that grew in in the knowledge of him, that grew in mercy and grace, that grew in understanding. And by the way, when you talk about birth, birth faith and living faith, then we got to wonder how many stillborns do we have around us? Folks that had the faith to be born, but not enough faith to grow and to be kept by the power of God. See, that's who we're supposed to reach out to. We're supposed to strengthen whatever remains. So what the enemy is after is your faith. Because he knows that without faith, it's impossible to please God. He don't care if you say you got faith. Because there's a difference in proclaiming faith and possessing faith. This is what happens when we lose faith. It's detrimental to a relationship or there's nothing more detrimental to a relationship than a breakdown of faith and trust. Once that happens, the relationship is only run through all types of filters. Once there's been that breach of trust, this is any relationship, if you don't trust that person, you're going to deal with that person through a a filter now. You're not going to come and give that person your all. You're going to stand back with a giant design and say, I remember what you did to me. I remember how you let me down. I know how you disappointed me. And because of that, I'm going to do something to where I don't have to completely depend on you. But I'm going to take and guard myself. This is where the devil gets a stronghold in our lives with God. And we start to go to all of those other things. So this is where we have ended up. Trying to relate to God through filters because we don't trust him we say Lord I I love the Lord he heard my cry when the back of your mind say I don't really believe the Lord now usually we say I'm not going to ask nobody to show hands but I'm going to ask y'all how many recently even right now might be in a a state to where you say God really isn't hearing me I ain't talking about what your lips say I'm talking about what you believe in your spirit thank you for the honesty because we know how to come and say, oh, just trust God, trust God, trust God, believe God. But in your in the back of your mind, you're saying, I don't know if this thing gonna work out because th- there was a time when I didn't get what I thought the Lord promised me. I don't I didn't get what I even think I deserved for even saying, Lord, I trust you because we, we come to him with, you know, I deserve this because I trusted you. So we have been spoiled. We're getting to our next verse. We've been spoiled. Our faith and trust has been confiscated by the various powers and principalities because we allowed him to skew our view and perception of number one, who Christ is. And number two, our completeness in Christ. Because you don't see Christ in the light that you should. You don't see him. As all of the Godhead fully dwelling in Christ. You don't see him as the one who spoiled the principalities and led them captive and is now holding them hostage in the anointing of the Holy Ghost. You don't see the God that came and said, I made an open show of them. To where I embarrassed them in front of their peers. Some of us actually see Christ as pretty weak. You won't say that with your mouth. I know. But we we see Christ is weak. Whenever you say that this thing has got a hold on me. This doubt. I just can't shake this. This doubt, this unbelief. You're saying that Christ does not have power over the influence, the, the principality of unbelief. Even the one that created the power of influence of unbelief and doubt. God don't have power over that in my life. So we've been spoiled. That brings us to verse number 8. Beware. Lest any man spoil you through philosophy. And vain deceit. After the tradition of men. After the rudiments of the world. And not after Christ. Now, this word spoiled means to damage. We're going to deal with two. We're going to deal with the dictionary. Then we're going to deal with the Greek. So in our world, it means to damage severely or to harm something, especially with reference to its excellence, its value, or its usefulness. It means to diminish or impair the quality of. It means to affect detrimentally. To damage or harm the character or nature of by unwise treatment or excessive indulgence. It means to strip of goods or valuables. And this is more closer to the Greek term. But in the Greek, here it means to spoil in the sense of plunder or to rob as when one plunders or is, is taken in war. And Pina dealt with this earlier today. The meaning is take heed lest anyone plunder or rob you of your faith and hope by philosophy. So these false teachers would strip them of their faith and hope as an invading army would rob a country of all that was valuable. Now, if you deal with the Colossian church, which we're reading, you have to know that this church was in the same vicinity as the church of Laodicea. Now, in the book of Revelation, we don't have a letter from John to the church of Colossae, but we do have a letter written to the church of Philadelphia, I mean, of, of Laodicea. And he tells them, you say that you're rich and increased with goods. You have need of nothing. You really don't need me. But the way I see you is that you're miserable. You're undone. You, you really don't have anything because you don't have me. So your completeness you're looking for your completeness and all of these other things. In fact, Paul, in this letter of Colossians, tells them, I want you guys to read the letter to Laodicea that I wrote or that it was either that he wrote them or that they wrote him. But we don't find that letter. No theologian knows where that letter went. But in Colossians, he mentions, I want you Colossians to read their letter and I want you to give them your letter. Because you're in such close vicinity, all of the philosophers and, and modern thinkers of the day were affecting the entire region, especially the Gnostics, who denied the deity of Christ. This is why he's got to tell them who Christ is. Because they, they they said that he can't be dual nature, because anything that is matter is evil. So if Christ came in the flesh, that means that God would have to be evil. So he doesn't buy into the fact that, like we say, that in all Areas he was tempted like is like like we were yet without sin. They didn't believe that like we believe it. So this is who he's talking to. You think that you're complete with all of these other things. You've come up with all of these ways of thinking and you've wrapped yourself comfortably in philosophy. And philosophy is nothing more than than just a system that you live by. Most religions have philosophy. Even the Christian faith has philosophy. It is a set of of systems that is deeply entrenched in our brains so much that we live by what we think. So he tells them, y'all ain't right. Your sufficiency is coming from somewhere else. And that is not how I built my church. So here are the means of spoiling. He lists four here. Number one, he says philosophy, philosophy in this text really dealt with Jewish sophistry, which means smooth talk. In fact, he dealt with a lot of what they call the philosophy of Moses with this group, because a a lot of the early church thought that, oh, we don't need Christ so much as we need to go back to the law and still sacrifice, still worry about what people eat and don't eat. Whether somebody washes their hands or not, we're going to just embrace that system and couple it with Christ. You can have Christ, but let's just take this thing that we're used to, you know, because I find my security over here with Moses. That's what I know. This thing is too new for me to, to, to just, you know, blindly trust you and, and you telling me that Christ has all the fullness of God. Now, now I got to go back to Moses. I know Moses. I've studied Moses. But this new thing that y'all are talking about, I can't really get with. So philosophy means a subtle, tricky, superficially plausible, but generally fallacious method of reasoning. It's all a fallacy. There's nothing stable to a lot of our thinking. Some of us pride ourselves on just breaking stuff down so much. You know, I could think myself through this thing. I, I, can, I can work it out. And if, if I divide it up into, and compartmentalize my test, my trial, then I can understand, you know, what God's doing. The Bible says he confounds the wise and then gives this thing to folk that just are just dumb. This church was in the region which was inundated with both Jewish and Greek philosophy, particularly Gnosticism, which I talked about. They consisted much of speculations respecting the nature of the divine existence. And the danger of the Colossians was that they would rely rather on the deductions of that specious or speculative reasoning than on what they had been taught by their Christian teachers. Vain deceit. Number two, Paul was warning them against hollow and empty philosophy, which proved deceptive. Number three, he deals with the traditions of man. If we go back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says that in that day, he said, there's going to be a people who are taught to worship me by men's traditions. Their fear of me is going to be taught to them by tradition. Tradition means that which is handed down. The important thing about any teaching is its origin. Sometimes we're not good enough to go and say, okay, where did this thing come from? And if you guys have known us any time in, in this particular setting, we've gone back and looked at some stuff and said, now, where did we get that from? How do we end up saying this, that, and the other? And we preach it like it's gospel. Our slogans, our songs, our misquotation of the scriptures. And then we realize there's no power in our life. It's because you, you, you've taken and watered down the real power of it. Any drug is is most powerful when it's left alone. You start watering it down, you just diminish the power of it. So not everything handed down has a solid or trustworthy origin. Paul spoke of being exceedingly zealous of the traditions of his fathers. And once he was saved, he counted those traditions as dung. Now, Paul had a set of traditions because he said among the Jews, he said concerning the law, I'm perfect. He said, I come from a school. I don't talk. I'm a Pharisee. I, I, I believe in Christ. I'm a, I'm a Pharisee. I know the Christ is coming. I'm a defender of the gospel. In fact, I, I'll put anybody in that that call themselves a Christian in jail because I know that these are false prophets. This is when he says I persecuted the church. Ignorantly, I didn't know what I was doing, but when Christ showed himself to me, all of the, the traditions that were handed to me, the ones that I said I was an expert in, and I was a part of the Sanhedrin, and I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, he said, All of that is dung now, it's trash, it's waste, because there's a more excellent knowledge in Christ. Because I realize now that Moses' authority was only given to him by the one who is the head of all principality and power. Rudiments of the world. The Greek word translated rudiments basically means one of a role or a series. It has several meanings attached to it. Number one, we could take the elementary sounds of the letters of the ABCs. Number two, the basic elements of the universe as we find in 2 Peter 3. And number three, we have the basic elements of knowledge. It means the ABCs of any system. But in ancient Greece, this word also meant the elemental spirits of the universe, the angels that influenced the heavenly bodies. It was one of the words in the vocabulary of the religious astrology of the day that we're reading about now. They wanted to tap into the spirits in the heavens. This is where we got our astrology from. These were the fathers of this thinking that they were dealing with, that if we could tap into that, then we can apply this to your life. That's why we have the tarot card reading and some go and get the paper every morning and look at what their sign is for the day. Because we rather believe that philosophy than to trust in Christ who says you're already complete. Yet we turn to the horoscopes and find out when am I going to get the husband that I want? When am I going to get the new house that I want? And then some of us, we, we laugh, but some of us are very serious when we go to the, to the local Chinese restaurant and we open that fortune cookie <laughs> and we, we read that fortune and it says that, that, that this week is, is the week that you're going to come into to, to some fortune or, or whatever the case may be. It never tells you, look out, you got trouble coming. Most churches you go to, when they, especially when they want your money, they ain't going to tell you that if you give to the Lord, you got trouble coming. But Jesus warned us when he came, he said, if you follow me, you're going to have a lot of enemies. That's one way you can tell a false prophet right there. If you promise me gold and silver and all of this stuff, when I follow Christ, you automatically a false prophet. Because Christ said, the world is going to hate you because of me. But we don't want to embrace Christ. We want to believe this philosophy over here because it sounds good and it focuses on me because I'm concerned about me, not on what Christ is. The false teacher that Paul is speaking of didn't ask these Christians to completely abandon their belief in Christ, they asked that they simply make Christ a part of the new system go back to the to the table of elements we have a table of elements that table of elements ain't changed as far as i know since i was a kid it was probably the same for my parents and my grandparents as far as you could go back to when they created because these are the main ingredients these are the main elements that build up all other elements There's nothing that exists without these elements. But yet, if you go beyond that influence that we learned about silver and copper and hydrogen and oxygen and all of these things, the Bible yet says that Christ is the head of all principalities and power. We can't stop at the elements of the table of elements. We got to go far beyond that when the Bible says that all things were created by him and for him. So the fundamental test of any religious teaching is. Where does it put Jesus Christ? Where does it put his person and his work? Does it rob him of his fullness? Does it deny either his deity or his humanity? Because we can't forget the human side of Christ either, because then we lose the fact that he has become our mediator. If we lose the fact that he became man, was tempted like man yet without sin, took on the, the, the affirmity. He felt our firm, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. If that's not true, then we can't claim that by his stripes we're healed. Does it affirm that the believer must have some new experience to supplement his experience with Christ? Do you say, yeah, 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 we got a lot of this this day. Yeah, I, I know the folks spoke in tongues back then, but that ain't what he's doing now. We, we got a new thing. So the thing with that is you stop people from searching for the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Because without that, you know, the devil knows they can't be led and guided. The spirit is here to lead and guide us into all truth. It is here to minister to us. It is here to give us the gifts of the spirit. Without that, we, we have nothing. We're just dead men and women walking. So we, we like this new thing because, you know, it doesn't leave anybody out. You know, we're all included. So does it require that you have some kind of new twist to things? Because, you know, what Christ gave us, that was 2,000 years ago. Times have changed. We got to stick with what he gave us. When he told them, he said, just stay in Jerusalem. You shall receive power. What, what power? The power that I am the head of after the Holy Ghost, not before, not when you receive it after the Holy Ghost comes upon you. Why? Because then you grow in grace, you grow in knowledge. And the more you know about him, the stronger you get in him. Now, when he says the spoil, spoil isn't that someone takes spoil from us. We get taken from Christ if we allow these things into our minds. We don't suffer spoil. We are the spoil. When he says, beware lest any man spoil you, you are the one that's being spoiled. So you just don't lose things. You're the one that's being lost. Christ who paid for us. He loses us. We become spoiled when we fail to see Christ as sitting above all principality and power. And we live that on a daily basis. We become spoiled. We become damaged severely, especially with reference to our excellence, our value. You devalue yourself when you don't see Christ as he ought to be and you don't live according to that knowledge. You devour yourself. You become less useful to Christ. To where he says, when I come back and I do the inspection, he says, some of this stuff's going to be burned up because it has no quality to it. It's not pure. We become the spoil. BP Alexander, and this is taken from the Biblical Illustrator. It's a commentary where where they combine a lot of different uh, early church fathers' thinkings. But B.P. Alexander says this. See to it, says Paul, lest there be someone to carry you off as his spoil, not to take spoil from you. The expression grasps powerfully the essence of the proselytizing spirit. The proselytizing spoil is the person proselytized. A person that is proselytized is one who has been converted in his thinking. Now, it is the job of the church Paul said, therefore, Peter says, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, we we change their thinking. That's what repentance is. Repentance means that that my mindset was totally against Christ. I was an enemy of the cross. We were enemies of Christ. We were enemies of the cross. The cross is the place where Christ redeemed our soul. We were enemies of the plan that was most beneficial to us. Someone had to change our thinking. That's where we repented. The first step toward turning to God is repentance. But yet these folks who had repented and turned to Christ, someone comes and causes them to repent again. And turn their attention away from Christ. That's the spoil. You were once headed into Christ. And you heard some smooth talk that sounded good. That gave you an explanation that you could understand of why you're going through what you're going through and why you don't have what you don't want and what you need and all of this junk. And your mind was turned again. You became a proselyte. He aims at doing this through that which is at once in its arrogant claims a high philosophy and in its miserable reality an empty deceit. It's a philosophy, artful, molded in accordance with an esoteric system. When he says esoteric is is one that this you, you really can't comprehend. You got to be among the elite to get this one. You know, this is a special word. This is a rhema word. We gotta watch out for the rhema word. The special word. I, I can explain it to you. You can't get it for yourself. And at best, is pervaded by five fatal deficiencies. Number one, he breaks it down, the same thing. It is merely traditional and therefore of precarious truth. Number two, it is human and therefore deficient in authority because it doesn't go high enough. Number three, it is elementary, belonging to the outworn creed to the rudiments of religion, and therefore unfitted for Christian manhood. Number four, it is material, not connected with the soul's true home and center, but with the palpable and external, and is therefore deficient in spirituality. And number five, being all this assuredly, as a matter of fact, it is not after christ beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy vain empty hollow thinking traditions that your mama and your grandmama said this is what we do to get what we need from god somebody asked a question in one of our sunday school classes what you know when 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 you're going through and you know You're battling such and such. And what do you do? do? And one of the mothers said, well, we always went to the altar and we left it at the altar. What do you do where there's no altar? What do you do? I got to carry this till I make it there. They just turned you. They think they're guiding you to Christ, but they just turned you from Christ who says that I am in you and I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even the children of Israel had a rock that followed them where they didn't have to go all the way back to the beginning. All they had to do was turn around and speak to the rock that was following them. Not only is the rock following us, it's, it's already in us. Yet we go to the preacher, we go to the evangelist, we go to the sister, we go to the brother. I'm um, well, woe is me and I can't make it. The devil's really wearing me out. Well, we need to start telling people is stop it. You're complete. You're complete. Are you in Christ? Then you're complete. Is the Lord your shepherd? Then you have everything you need. Has the son set you free? Then you're free indeed. There is no want to them that fear the Lord. I could go on with a hundred other scriptures if y'all want me to, you know. There's no want. What do you want? If you want anything more than Christ or different than Christ, then you want the wrong thing. What is it about Christ that that, that is so unsatisfying? Why, Why are we so unsatisfied to have just Christ and him crucified? Why do we need more? Why do I need a husband with Christ? Why do, why do I need a, a, another job promotion with Christ? You're in him. That's all you need. Because like she said, I think it makes God sad when we say, boy, Sunday, I can't wait to get to the house of God because I'm going to get what I need. Then we come with the wrong mindset that we're incomplete. And then the one that we're trusting, the good preacher because I heard this hundreds and hundreds of times from hundreds and hundreds of people. If you don't praise God, you ain't going to get your blessing. You ain't going to get your deliverance. You ain't going to get your healing. But Jesus said that if you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. He didn't say I'll give it to you if you shout around the building. He didn't say I'll give it to you if you drop to your knees and cry and, and snot and sweat and roll around. So all you got to do is Ask. So we got a bunch of folk that that have the wrong idea with Christ coming to folks that they trust have the the mind of Christ and ain't nobody got the mind of Christ. We end up with philosophy, vain, empty, hollow religious activity. Traditions that that this is all we know to do because this is just what we do. This is how we do it. There has to come a time to where you have to question the traditions Paul had to face his traditions and say, Well, I've got my traditions and then I've got Christ. Now I've got to choose which one I want because I can't have both. Yeah. So the enemy will use any and all of the aforementioned tactics just so long as you don't place your trust and faith in Christ. When you hear about the term antichrist, it just doesn't mean opposed to Christ. But it means that you do things that are in place of Christ. You replace Christ with, with other things. Wow. That is the real spirit of Antichrist. You don't have to completely abandon. You can have Christ. That's what the devil told. You can have Christ. But just add this to Christ. Wow. But Christ is sitting there telling you that I'm a jealous God. Yes. And this thing that you just sat next to me. In the house of Dagon. They set the, the Ark of the Covenant next to Dagon. Christ said, I'm jealous. And when they came back the next morning, Dagon was tipped over. And what do they do? They set Dagon back up. Christ comes to you and says, I want your untrusting heart. And you say, no, Lord, I'm just going to prop my untrusting heart right here next. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my untrusting heart here with your word. And he knocks it over, and the next day you say, "No, I got to have this unt- this disbelief, this unfaith I, I, this unfaithfulness. I, this is my comfort zone." I set it back up. He knocks it over again. We set it back up again. <laughs> so Christ say, "Okay." They're not getting this thing. So the next morning they came back. And what he had done to Dagon would never be reversed again. And this is what I hope happens in this place tonight, that the arms of Dagon would be cut off. To where the things that he tries to devise in your life, he can't do because he has no arms. The head of Dagon was cut off. That those principalities and powers, their powers are stripped in your life because you know who God is. The legs of Dagon was cut off. So if you tried to prop him up, he had nothing to stand on. And the Bible says that that threshing floor, that place to where they entered the temple of Dagon. He said every time they entered that temple, they had to step over the God that the God of Israel had knocked down, beheaded. Cut his hands off and cut his feet off. So when you try to go into the depression that you've always been going to, you will remember that God was here and tried to abolish that power in your life. We set up so many gods in our lives. And we refuse to let the power of the Holy Ghost abolish them. We refuse to let God be all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We refuse to believe that all things are made by him and for him, whether they be principal thrones and dominions, principalities and powers. We we refuse to believe that he is the head of everything that you face in life. He died in order to become the head. God placed him as the head, far above it. To where even on its best day, your enemy, Christ still sits far above your enemy. Sometimes I don't even know if it's really, we should be concerned so much with the enemy so much more as we need to be concerned about how we view Christ. That's where our sin is. I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. The principalities are the things that we need to bring into subjection. And bring it under the obedience of Christ. The obedience that Christ learned through suffering. That's why you suffer. Because you're learning obedience. You think that you suffer because God just wants to show me what? He, it does, he doesn't have to show you anything just because you're going through a test. You're selfish. He's not supposed to show you. You're supposed to show the principalities and the powers that God is God. That's the reason for your test. That I'm obedient to God through my suffering. And that's what makes me complete in him. So we're going to pray as as we take this new knowledge. And you got to take it from this place and do something with it. We can't just come for a few hours and say, wow, that that was really thought provoking. Wow. We can't take this and try to philosophize it with our vain deceit. We can't take this and try to validate our traditions. The things that were handed down to us. And we can't take this and, and try to apply the rudiments of the world. Well, you know, you know that there's a self-help book that I think I can apply. If I take that self-help book and I... and. You know, I could find some scriptures that support this self-help book. You, you, you can't mix Christ. Christ stands alone. He stands alone. Beside me there is no God. Whatever you need is in Christ.